Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction. We were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. This is part four of our five-part series on Dopesick with New York Times writer and best-selling author Beth Macy. In this episode, we'll have an in-depth conversation with Sister Beth Davies, who together with Dr. Art Van Zee and their community coalition, laid the groundwork for the first lawsuit to be filed against Purdue Pharma. Sister Beth Davies, a Staten Island native and member of the Congregation of Notre Dame, has served as an activist and advocate on behalf of the impoverished, addicted, and exploited in the heart of Appalachia for more than 40 years. Through her dedicated efforts, Sister Beth has developed a network of medical clinics. She's worked for environmental protections. She's built effective substance abuse and addiction programs, and she's changed the Virginia criminal justice system to improve treatment for inmates. So, Sister Beth, I'm delighted to have you here with me today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. You know, you have a long history of fighting social injustice. So introduce our audience to just some of those causes that you've taken up. Actually, uh, initially uh, here, um, one of the um, early on uh, work that we did, we came into an area where there was absolutely no health care. We had five doctors in our whole county, and one of them was a surgeon, and uh, he, was, he was almost blind. And um, we really had, um, people had never even, had never even been uh, to a doctor or ever knew what it, what it was to have a, 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 any kind of um, medical history at all. So what, uh, what we did early on, we were very fortunate because of uh, Vanderbilt University Medical School. Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. they were doing um, health fairs in areas um, in Appalachia where uh, there was, it was medically underserved, mainly because they were in Tennessee, they're in Nashville, they were doing it on the Tennessee side. But then they were looking just over the board, we're on the, actually on the border of Kentucky and Tennessee, where we are in our county, and uh, they looked over and they were looking at areas that had absolutely no health care at all. And they asked, they kind of uh, came into the community and met with people in the community. They, their way of organizing was wonderful because what they did, they listened to the people first. And they never came into a community unless they were invited in by the community. So they, uh, they came in and uh, they just asked me to uh, get some people together who would really, really need health care. And, of course, that was the whole community. But they wanted to listen to people. So we had a series of listening sessions with um, a person from a medical person from the university, and uh, as as they spoke to the person, they be- began to realize more and more that there was no health care at all, and they um, told people that there is a possibility that they could bring in, you know, um, a clinic, a, just a short term uh, clinic for um, a week or two in the area set it up and just uh, see people uh, just as, as they wanted to come and receive some health care. So what happened was they came into the community and uh, 
they, they had what they called a health fair, and anybody in the community who wanted to, uh, you know, come in, uh, they were willing to see, they would be willing to examine, they were willing to give them uh, the care that they needed in that short period of time. So they ran this health fair for about two weeks and uh, saw people, uh, whoever wanted to come, and they had all kinds of services. We realized this was a great organizing tool, that if we together as a community could form a health council, and that health council could reach out for funds and for people, uh, for the needs that people had and started to learn more about the community, it was a whole community effort to bring um, the necessary funding and then decided that, well, why should we have them come in once a year and just for a short period of time? Why don't we have our own clinic? And see, that was the beginning of an organizing tool to get the community to build its own clinic. And every, it's called, like we call it from the beginning, the nickel and dime clinic, because that's exactly how it went up. Sister Beth shares the story of building a health clinic and in the process, uniting a community. To have one goal, building our own health clinic. And that's exactly what they did. It went up, you know, step by step, another donation here, a donation there, a donation, and uh, began to really move on. When the coal companies realized that the health clinic would become a reality at St. Charles, they tried to get wings dedicated in their names. And then the coal companies, who completely ignored it, completely uh, and were responsible, all they wanted to do was get the coal and get the community out of there so they could get more coal, um, they began to see something was happening. And they, some of the coal companies that ignored uh, the community effort, they began to reach out and say, well, you know, yeah, this clinic seems to be going up. You know, we'll give you such and such a donation if you name this particular room, you know, uh, we uh, to, uh, give the, at least put our plaque outside that particular room to say we've donated so much for this to happen. And they turned down every coal company that offered anything. In the beginning, they wanted nothing, but they just, it was nothing but scorn. And as soon as it looked as though this might develop, they began to reach out, and of course they wanted their names on a placard, you know. And they, the beautiful part of the group that formed and became the St. Charles Health Council, they turned down every penny from the coal company. And they began to get to know each other as a community, because we're a community where we're all different coal camps. And it just, we're built right into the mountains. It's, it's a dead-end town, so it doesn't grow. Nothing goes through there. And you just go into it. It's like spokes in a wheel, and every spoke goes back into the mountains. And it's a coal company that owns that particular part, another coal company that owns another part. And uh, those different people never really got to know each other. And what this did, it formed a full community. The St. Charles community is really a series of uh, many, many coal camps. And so it brought people for the first time to get to know each other, to work together, to build together, determined to get their own clinic. And eventually, it actually went up. You developed a real sense of community, it sounds like, through this. That, that was the beautiful part of it, a real sense of community, because there were other issues we were dealing with at the same time. Sister Beth shares how their community, United, couldn't be bought. It was, it was at a time, that, that particular time, that have, you remember in, in many communities there were these landfills that they wanted to build. They wanted to send garbage and, uh, from the industrial northeast and midwest. They didn't know what to do with, their, with uh, their, all their throwaways. 
So they looked down at the mountains and thought, this is a wonderful place on these strip mines, you know, that we could get in and uh, bring our uh, our waste. Or, you know, and so it, it, it we looked at it as a place, well, really a dumping ground for them. And so that was the first organizing to stop this from happening. And they came in with all kinds of promises to the community and we're going to help you build your schools and get all this equipment for your schools. Oh, and they had these shiny, you know, advertising. It was advertisement in everybody's post office box and showing what they would do for the community and how wonderful it would be to have them come in and, of course, bringing their waste with them. And so the community prevented that. It was a real organizing tool with the community. They said, no way. We are not going to be the dumping ground for those who want to get rid of their waste. In 1996, OxyContin was approved by the FDA, and you saw an impact almost immediately in your community. What happened? Um, Almost immediately. Well, it came out, it was released in 96, and by 97, we already had found a, a senior at our local high school snorting OxyContin in the library. That fast. And um, what happened was a Purdue farmer came into all of the doctors in Lee County, who were very few, and they, they first of all, they looked at areas that were, um, there was a lot of prescriptions being written, and they were being written because there really was so few medical people that people were, they throw at them a, a, a prescription uh, rather than doing a full Right up on people's oh, so there wasn't enough doctors to go along, oh, go around, no, so they didn't no have doctor. the time, so they would throw prescriptions at them that's, so that's that they would, would be happen. happy and go away. Exactly, because that was the only way. And if a doctor didn't prescribe, uh, he wasn't a good doctor because he didn't prescribe something. Because, yeah. And the only reason that they did prescribe, they had so many patients to keep up with that they'd you know, do a little uh, fast survey of the patient and then realize, well, this is what you need or that's what you need. And, and so prescriptions were really, you know, people were over-prescribed with uh, medications only because the doctors were so few and uh, some pain relief or other relief needed, you know, for, for other ailments. But anyway, as that began to um, increase, um, Purdue Farmer, of course, had done their, their homework to find areas where there was legitimate pain, and we had plenty of that because of the coal mines and logging, and also uh, a high Medicaid rate, because if we had a high Medicaid rate, uh, they knew that that would take care of paying for the prescriptions. And that data was readily available for them out there. Readily available. They, we had the whole database that they had that uh, they went through first, and they had all, all areas of the country marked out. And so here we were one, and at the same time, uh, Washington County, Maine, which had a lot, they didn't have coal, of course, but they had loggers, and they was legitimate pain from terrible accidents and logging. And the same demographic as ours, you know, the high Medicaid rate, you know, the poverty level and so forth. So they focused at the same time on Washington County, Maine, and uh, here we were in St. Charles, Virginia. And then... Day after day after day after day, we had people coming in and asking for help uh, who couldn't get off this drug. We had all of a sudden, I mean, it was all, it's hard to believe, but it was almost like overnight, the community, there were all kinds of thefts, people were, there were burglaries we never had before, people never had to lock their doors or lock their places, everything, everybody was locking up everything. 
they gathered in a community forum to share the impact of the opioid epidemic on their community. When we had a community health forum, uh, we, he said, you know, we ought to get a petition online to let us, you know, get this uh, OxyContin withdrawn until it's reformulated. He wasn't the person who wanted to do without prescription when people needed them, but he didn't want it to be one that was easily uh, abused easily by people. So we said, let's, let's just get it and then have it reformulated. Well, this opened a whole can of worms with Purdue Pharma, you can imagine. And that's when Purdue Pharma wanted to come in and meet with us and so forth. And it's the same storyline. It was almost like the same as anything else coming in. So it would be the landfills, whether it be mountaintop removal. No matter what it was, the, the, all of the companies used the exact same tactic. You know, we're here, you know, to help you, and we'll do this and do that and give you this and give you that. I mean, we had heard it so many times that, you know, we got tired of it. Dr. Van Zee describes the events leading up to the Purdue executives coming to town. The coalition was formulating a recall petition, and uh, we'd actually had a, a town meeting at the high school uh, auditorium. There was 800 people there, and, and uh, you know, with people flowing out to the outside, and, you know, you, you don't get 800 people in that auditorium in our little county unless your football teams won the state championship or something. <laughs> so it was a huge, painful issue for the whole county. But it was at that uh, at that meeting that we kind of presented the, the petition to recall OxyContin, the national petition to recall OxyContin. And it was around that same time that we heard that they wanted to, uh, well, they, they uh, I can't remember, I think it was David Haddix that called me up and, said that uh, some of them would come down, they wanted to uh, meet with me, and, and uh, uh, my wife had the good advice that, no, we need, a bunch of us need to meet with them, not just you. Um, and, uh, and so that's, what, that's how that meeting all came to, to be in um, uh, Duffield, Virginia, yeah. Wow. So you had the rally, uh, in essence, where the community came together, 800 people in the uh, community all came together and talked about this. You presented the petition uh, in the community, and uh, everyone, uh, quite a bit of backing from the community, obviously. And then uh, Purdue Pharma reached out to you and uh, asked for a meeting. Um, And uh, your wife recommended that uh, you bring plenty of support along with you. So take it from there. Yeah, so we um, so we did meet with them. Uh, met with them about an hour and a half or something like that. And um, you know, we had uh, there was a, uh, a young man, professional man, who worked in the in the uh, community whose uh, son had uh, become oxycontin addicted, and he basically presented you know his his son's story and his family story and all of that they've been gone through and all they've had uh, all the efforts and things they had to do to try to get treatment for him and just to you know present a human uh, uh, side of this to them so they'd understand and then um, you know we just talked about all the problems with it but uh, with the oxycontin in general but it was at that very end that they they kind of, uh, they already had a, a a big newspaper ad, full page thing that they were going to run, and it was obvious that you know they weren't interested in in changing anything. They're just trying to 
to, to, to cover up and, and it was at that time they were offering the you know, I think the hundred thousand dollars. You know, we talked about it and there were people that thought we should take it and um because it could be used for to help get people treatment and um but it, uh, eventually um you know Beth's uh, argument was more persuasive to us and uh, and we didn't want to take it. You were ready for them when they came in. We were ready. We were absolutely ready. And they thought that we would immediately uh, respond because they were offering money and they were going to do so many different things. They were going to do this for the schools and that for the schools. And, of course, we weren't buying it. Yeah. And, uh, and Well, some some in the community bought it, though, if, if I understood oh, yeah. that right. And uh, you stood firm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some of the community, oh, absolutely bought it. And uh, it was really, it, it was deplorable. You know, because if you offer something and they want to get something out of it, uh, people were ready, you know, for that handout. They were going to take it. But, of course, in the long run, that's all we needed to do was take something from them, and we'd be advertised all over with them, you know. Mm -hmm. Look at what we did for them. Look at what we did for this community. Look at what, yeah, look what you did. But anyway, no, I stood firm against that. That was really, uh, to me, that was deplorable, and that was their tactic. So they were offering $100,000 as a grant quote-unquote, and um, some of the members in your coalition said, yes, let's take it, and you yes, stood firm, and you said, yeah. no, we can't do that. And I said, if you say yes, I'm, I'm, I'm out of the coalition. I'm not staying in it, because this is blood money, and, and we're not going to use money from a, for a pharmaceutical company that's killing us and use their money for other things, and then they could go advertise. Every other community, look what we did for St. Lee County. They also brought along with them a slick ad campaign, didn't they? That they were all prepared to run that week in the paper. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, they had everything uh, all ready to go. Uh, yes. And they had, well, they, and, and they, we had in every mailbox a slick, you know, advertising on this oh, beautiful color paper and showing all that this was going to do for the community, for Lee County. I mean, my goodness, we would have everything. It would be wonderful. So they actually yeah. stuffed a bunch of flyers in everybody's mailboxes for this Everybody. in advance of the meeting. In advance, right, oh. yeah. Mm. So anyway, anyway, we stood firm in the end um, and uh, would not accept a penny. So it was and, an overwhelming amount of work to bring that petition to the point where you had your 10,000 signatures on it and exactly. you're rallying everybody yeah. and there is a lot of uh, anticipation that, okay, we'll bring the executives to town, we'll yeah. explain to them what we have, and then they will see our way and they'll, they'll move ahead with things. But that, of course, didn't happen. And no so, you know, there's so much time that still was required to actually yeah. file this thing. So exactly. from there, it kind of languished for a little while until you met mm -hmm. another group from California, didn't it? Well, the wonderful thing was through this and through the Internet, that was the wonderful thing about the Internet, we could connect all over. Yeah. And so people were recognizing, you know, what this petition was saying because they were dealing with the same thing in their own communities now because it had gone smack across the country. And uh, so that way we, we were really connected and felt we knew all these people by name. We knew the name, but we'd never met. And uh, but we we had met on the internet, and we met through these, and so the petition really just soared, and that really really uh, got into that. You can imagine what that did to Purdue. This yeah. was not acceptable at all. The community of St. Charles was planning to file a lawsuit against Purdue Pharma when they learned the state of Virginia took up the case. Then the, uh, the there was a person. 
running for office in the state of Virginia, who really saw this as a great work for him to get involved in, because it would do him some good. So the state then took it over, actually, and started, and in a way it was good, because we really didn't have the money to really continue this as far as we needed to take it. Well, but sure. anyway, they That's took over. Bucks. And so then, when, when they took it over, uh, we knew it could go on, because they had the finances and the desire to do it by then. And this is where people from all over the country gathered in Abingdon, Virginia, at the courthouse, the federal courthouse. In 2007. 2007. Right. And um, the judge, Judge Jones, um, uh, even at that, the time we got in there, uh, he had said to the, the company people were down there from Purdue, and, uh, and of course there was a demonstration outside the courthouse, and all up and down the, the streets in, in Abingdon, Virginia, and there were signs all over, signs of people who had who had we had lost as a result of this drug. And as I understand it, the people from Purdue wanted to go in the back door of the courthouse. This was so much, so much protest on the main at the main door. And the judge said, "No, you'll come in the way everybody else comes in here." <laughs> so they had to walk out in front and go up the courthouse steps, and of course, with all the demonstrations going on. And then they went in, and Judge Jones said, before uh, we get into this whole thing, what we want to see, we want to hear from the people who have been affected by this. And so he let any person who wanted to, to come up and testify and tell the story, right facing the um, people from Purdue. Yeah, the executives. And, they just there, and it was there. And here they sat, you know, stone-faced. And then one woman came up and... Um, she um, uh, she was came up from Florida, and her son, he was just a teenager, he was 18 years old, and uh, he, he took his first Oxycontin, and he died. And she didn't know what happened to him. And her name is Lee Nuss, N-U-S-S. Mm-hmm. And, and so she um, so she had, he, he was cremated, and so every place she went, she carried with her a little ceramic uh, with his ashes inside and so she had that with her in the courthouse. And she went up to them, and we didn't know what she was going to do with that. And she just went across to each of these executives and said, this, this is my son, and this is what you did to my son. Mm-hmm. And anyway, and she would just come with that. And it was very, very powerful. But everything they indeed. said in that courtroom that day was indeed powerful. Oh. And so as they listened to all of that stone-faced, rigid, you know, um, it was just, it was, it was just, it was a terrible sight. So and the executives that. were charged with wrongdoing and fined $34 million. Exactly. But that Which is 30, a drop in the bucket. Yeah. yeah. The $34 yeah. million dollars for each of them and, was actually paid by the company, wasn't it? Sure. And then community service. They had to do community service. And the company itself was charged $634 million, I believe it was, in the settlement. And that's what, $634. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. interestingly enough, now, they had a shell company, though, Purdue Frederick. Yes, that's that, right. Yes. That ended up being the ones who were responsible for paying this and also were the ones that were no they were sanctioned and they were no longer allowed to be accepting Medicaid payments, if I'm not mistaken, and couldn't yes. participate in that. Couldn't participate, right. So so this entity was able to shield Purdue Pharma yes. from that's much right, of right. the the you know, really the penalty of this, right? Yes. That's right. You're right. Yeah, you've got all these facts there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so the whole thing, I mean, 
I mean, it really brought it to the fore, and it really uh, made Purdue Pharma realize, you know, well, wait, there's just more to this than, you know, just people uh, complaining about this drug. You know, it's, um, we're in trouble. One more question on the settlement. Of that $634 million, how much of that went to drug abuse and treatment in Lee County, Sister Beth? Nothing for treatment. Absolutely zero for treatment. See, which is the interesting thing. They kind of bucked that because, you know, then they'd say, you know, well, we, we as a company could do, we would be, we would say that we were really at fault for how sick these people got. So we didn't go to treatment. Most of it went to monitoring drug prescriptions and also to law enforcement. Sister Beth shares the impact of the reformulation of OxyContin on their community. The impact isn't what we would have liked to have seen. So you and had now, heroin that came into doctors, your community and fentanyl uh, in a big way, right? In a big way. And see, many doctors at this point, because of what has happened through all of this, many doctors would no longer prescribe oxy at all. See, that came in pretty fast after everything blew up because the doctors then were afraid to even prescribe it. You know, some were afraid to even have it in their offices because of people breaking in and burglaries and so forth. One pharmacist's wife told me they never, ever had any trouble with anything, with any of their uh, clients or patients or people working with them. And uh, she said, we're, she said, I'm afraid almost to go home at night uh, because they're even coming to our home looking for prescriptions. And uh, it, it, it got to be, I mean, it, you were in an area where you were just saying people were almost so afraid to be out on the streets sometimes if they, if they were people who were pharmacists or had a pharmacy or whatever, they just were, um, they were really bombarded. And because people were so desperate, you know, so desperate for the drug. Wow. I'm envisioning uh, quite the transformation from a Norman Rockwell scene yes. all the way, you know, to a Friday the 13th or something like that, just un, un, unfathomable. They'd even have signs outside the pharmacy, you know, that they didn't prescribe, ox- they didn't have oxycontin had that all over the place. Wow, was that so? Yeah, there were signs out, yeah. And so no oxytocin here, no oxytocin. Because they just, they did not want to be besieged and by the, the people who were addicted, and so were desperate. They were just desperate. Yeah. And uh, hmm. so that's what happened. They were living in a, an area of people so desperate for the drug that they would do anything, anything yeah. to get it. What final words would you have for our listeners, Sister Beth? stigma of this disease causes fewer and fewer people to present themselves to treatment. We've got to get rid of the stigma. This is a disease, the brain disease, and people who have this disease deserve every bit of respect and dignity of any other person with any other disease like cancer or anything else. This uh, drug addiction and people who are addicted deserve the same kind of treatment same kind of uh, dignity. Well, Sister Beth, I've really enjoyed our time together this morning. It's, uh, again, it's, it's really just been a delight, and wow, you're, you're a fountain of knowledge. Um, so, uh, so thank you, and thank you for okay. what you've done for your region and the country, for that matter. It's uh, profound. Thank you for joining us for part four of our five-part series on Dope Sick with New York Times writer and best-selling author Beth Macy. Joining us in today's episode has been Sister Beth Davies and Dr. Art Van Zee, who shared their story of 
how their community came together to fight Purdue Pharma. Tune in next time for our fifth and final part in our series on Dopesick with best-selling author Beth Macy. My name is Craig McNeil. I'm from Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.